So I'm going to read, I'm going to read a longer portion this morning. I'm going to read chapters 1 and 2 together. So I'd like you to follow along. I'll, I'll try to read them well, but I, I realize having been on the other side of Scripture readings, it's easy for minds to wander. I think you're helped if you read along with me. So whether it's in a phone or in the text in the pages of your Bible, please uh, do your best to track the story. So we're following up. This is about 300, 320 years after they enter into the land of Egypt. So if you want context, our nation was founded about 247 years ago. So we're another 70, 80 years older than the U.S. for how long Israel has been incubating in the nation of Egypt and growing as a nation. So it's been quite a while. I mean, none of us think like, oh yeah, George just passed away a few years ago. But, you know, sometimes like in that biblical, like, ignorance, we think Joseph and Jacob have just passed away. We're talking centuries, and you think how close you are to the Revolutionary War and how easily you remember that. So, so don't think about Israel as somehow being just yesterday Joseph passed away, right? It's been quite a while. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to, this, to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly. That's the word wisdom. Let us deal wisely with them. Lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities of Pithom and Ramses, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service in the hard service in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when, your servants, when you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman, the woman conceived, and bore a son. And when she saw that his, uh, 
that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took him for a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and and pitch, and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby is crying. And she took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. And his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child, her own son, and nursed him and was paid for it. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian, killed him, and hit him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And he answered, Who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill us as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their flocks. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And when they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah, and she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those days, the king of Egypt died. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help, and their cry for for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. That's an incredibly profound passage, isn't it? I hope you're able to mentally track with the reading. As this text starts, it's giving a framework for understanding what's going to be going on in the book of Exodus in terms of both parties, the Israelites and the Egyptians. And maybe I would say the the hero of the story is God himself. And so we're introducing uh, these component parts, Israel and Egypt, so that God might show us who he is. In fact, when you look at those first words there, it's actually almost a direct quote out of Genesis 46, verse 8. These are the names. That's how a Hebrew would have understood this book. They wouldn't have called it Exodus. That's actually actually a Greek word. They would have called this the book of names. You think about what God is doing in this text. He's revealing to us who he is. He is showing us his name. In fact, if we're to trace that theme just a little bit through the book, In Exodus 3, as Moses is at this burning bush, Moses says to God, 
If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask, what is your name? What shall I tell them? Moses asks God, who's speaking out of the burning bush. Verse 14 of Exodus 3 says, God answered Moses, I am who I am. And he said, so or you shall say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me. So God gives us his name. He is the I am, that is the self-existent one, the one who is not dependent on any other, the eternal God who always is, was, and will be, the one who will always be unchanging because he is perfect in the past, present, and future. There is no development in God. There's no decay in God. God is and was because he is the I am. That's his name. You would say in Hebrew, Yahweh. And so for now and forever, he will be known by this name. In Exodus, he says, I never gave this name to Abraham or Jacob, but now I give you my name that you might call on me. Exodus 5, as Moses goes and speaks to Pharaoh, I'm going to put Yahweh in the name of the Lord. You'll see that Yahweh name with the lower caps in most translations. So it'll be capital L with lower caps, O-R-D. Then you'll know in the Hebrew it's Yahweh. It's his actual proper name. In Exodus 5, afterward, Moses and Aaron said to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast for me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh? that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know Yahweh. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. You can see how the name, excuse me, the name there becomes for Pharaoh the point. Who is this God you've just named? I've never heard of him, and I'm not going to obey him. I will keep on ruling. I do not listen to this God you've just named. So you continue in Exodus. Exodus 9 God speaks and he says, For this purpose I've raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. This is the book of names. And God says, This is the reason I've done this. I've done this so that my name, my fame and reputation would move through all of my created order, that all the world might know who I am because I am the self-existent, the eternal, the all-perfect God. I am who I am. And he preaches through the absolute destruction of Pharaoh. The most powerful man in the world is shown to be a whimpering, helpless servant to God's designs. Exodus 15, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. In Exodus 33, Moses having to ascend back into the mountain to rescribe the commandments that he broke when he was angry with Israel's idolatry, pleads to the Lord, says, Lord, show me your glory. I want you to listen to the Lord's response. The Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. I will do this for you. I have found, you have found favor in my sight. I know you by name. And Moses said, please show, you, show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show mercy on whom I will show mercy. What an incredibly powerful passage. Show me your glory. 
I'll show you my glory, but I'm going to proclaim my name. I am gracious and merciful. Isn't it compelling that that's the first way God introduces his name to Moses? And then in Exodus 34, you shall tear down all altars and break down all these pillars and asherim, for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. He's made his name known so that we might worship him and him alone. All other worship is idolatry. God has a right to be jealous because he has created us for his glory. It is wrong for God to not be jealous. Usually we think of jealousy as a negative attribute, don't we? Like, oh, don't be jealous. But God, on the other hand, has a right to our worship, our hearts, our devotion. He has a right to our lives, to our stuff. We are merely stewards. And so he tells Israel, worship me and me alone. I am a jealous God. That is my name. So God identifies who he is to the Hebrews by letting them know he is the I am. As we look at this text then, and we come back to Exodus 1, we realize that when he says, these are the names, that the book of, he- book of Exodus is already preaching to the Hebrew people who God is. He identifies the sons of Israel, that is those 12 uh, names through which the tribes are identified and named. But then when you come to verse 6, it says Joseph died and his brothers and all that generation. It's kind of a sad moment in which you see kind of the passing of that Genesis accounting. And now we're moving forward to this new people in in the uh, book of Exodus here. So verse 7, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. So as we kind of like look at maybe I could say the, the themes of this text we have before us this morning, we have the introduction of God's people in, in these first seven verses. Then we have the introduction of those who oppose God's people in the next seven verses. So as you look at this, really the introduction of God's people, we might ask the question, how do we go from a band of 70 that's abandoned everything to move to Egypt into a thriving, ethnically um, solid group of people that's powerful and mighty and ready to be a nation? How do you move from one to the other? And remember, Israel is 300 years past this, so in many ways what Moses is doing is he's teaching history to Israel. He's saying this is how God formed us and made us his people. And he says this, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. Now, if you've been tracking with this in Genesis, you're hearing those words and bells are going off in your heads. Right, like when God makes Adam and Eve, he tells them to do what? Be and multiply. In fact, that, that word that says they, they increased greatly is that word for swarming or teeming. When God made the fish in Genesis 1.20, the, the oceans, the, the waterlands were filled or teeming or swarming with fish. And it's as though you have Israel walking in the pattern of obedience to God They are being fruitful and multiplying. Noah gets off the ark. And in Genesis 9, God tells him to do what? Be fruitful and multiply. God has called us to fill this earth, not only that we fill it with people, but that his glory through his people would be broadcast. 
It's not merely that he wants a populated world. He wants a world populated with godly people. And so when we see Israel being fruitful and multiplying, what we recognize is they're being obedient to God's admonition, that they be productive as a people. In fact, when you get to Genesis 48, as Jacob is passing away, and remember, he's about 147 years old, so he, he has lived to a ripe old age. He reminds Joseph, in Genesis 48, verses 3 through 4, Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples, and I will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. If you look at what God has promised in Genesis 48, he tells Jacob, whose name is Israel, I am going to make you fruitful and multiply you. As we, as we close the curtain on Act 1 in Genesis and we open up the curtain on the next act, how does God describe Israel? They have been fruitful and multiplied. Not only is God's blessing on them, I think it's an indication that they are God's offspring, they are God's righteous and obedient offspring, and they are thriving. I think there are a couple other hints at the godliness of Israel. And again, I, they're a group of over a million people. So to say they're godly doesn't mean that every single one of them is godly. But there's still this fiber of godliness that's hinted at through the text I think is helpful for us to see. For instance, look down in verse 17. But the midwives did what? Feared God. And what did they not do? Kill baby boys. Now, when we go back to Genesis 3, and you remember that first sermon where we contrasted these two lines of offspring, and God had told Eve, the offspring of the serpent is going to be hostile against the offspring of the woman. And then you see how Genesis shows this kind of cosmic battle going on, where this offspring that's descended from this godly line has a constant faith in God. Remember how Lamech said, Noah is going to give us rest from our work? And just shows this confidence that God is going to use the righteous offspring of his chosen people to bring about rescue from sin's curse. And how there's a different Lamech who's a man who is evil and filled with violence. And he says, if someone strikes me, I'm going to kill them because my vengeance is mightier than God's. And there's this contrast, these two kind of lines of offspring. And here, Pharaoh decides he is going to kill God's people. And two women do right because they, they fear the Lord. So God is hinting at the righteousness of Israel. I think you see it, again, maybe clearer in terms of national um, righteousness. If you go to verse 23 of chapter 2, during those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And they cried out for help. Their cry for help or for rescue from slavery came up to God. I think that's a euphemism not only for prayer but for God responding to it. That is, we have these, these righteous midwives who on a personal level are risking life and limb. I mean, you have to love their reason for why these babies are being born and not dying. Well, Hebrew women are just better at giving babies. I don't know. <laughs> like... <laughs> But, but they're doing this not because 
Merely they love life. Not merely because they're patriotic nationalists for Israel. They do this because they fear the Lord. And then you move forward into chapter 2, and Israel's hurting. They're in slavery, and they've been in slavery at this point over 80 plus years. And if you follow the account, we, we might be able to expand that significantly more than 80 years. That they've been in bondage and affliction, and they have been oppressed, and they're groaning. It speaks to national sorrow and hurt. And their cry for help reaches heaven. So we are introduced to this righteous offspring, the descendants of Israel, whom God is blessing, prospering, and growing. And then he introduces and kind of like pan the camera over to Egypt. How is Pharaoh described? A couple of commentaries point out that on Pharaoh's um, headband or crown is a serpent. You ever notice that? You know, the Pharaoh is, is identified with his cobra, with its hood up. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? The offspring of Eve on one side and the offspring of the serpent. And you start to see God revealing the opposition to him and his program and his people. Look with me in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt. Let me just pause on that new king. It's very likely, um, as pointed out in a couple of commentaries, that the Hyksos Empire which had been a foreign invader, had been leading Egypt when Joseph came down. And since then, the Egyptians have reclaimed the power over their own country. So there might be not only just merely a new king, probably in all likelihood, there is a new um, family of kings, or there's been a whole new change to, to the system of governance There is a new power in the land, and it's probably distinctly hostile to foreigners. Because the Hyksos were foreigners, who happened to be from that region from which Israel had just come. And so there's probably not merely a sense in which there's this this new line of kings. It's probably this new dynasty is, in fact, hostile to all aliens, all those who aren't native Egyptians. As, as we move forward, though, it says they did not know Joseph. They had no regard for Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war, war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Again, if the Hyksos were, were I'm going to do my map backwards. It's always a little bit challenging. Egypt is down here. Israel lived in the land of Goshen. That's kind of right here on, the, on the, uh, this side of Egypt, east side. And, and the land of Canaan and the mountainous region up here is where the Hyksos would be. So if they attack, Pharaoh's saying strategically, they might grab the Hyksos and use the, the, the Israelites as a collaborative invading force to come in and conquer all of Egypt. And so Pharaoh is probably in all likelihood saying, this could spell big trouble for us if there's an insurrection. Which he, he probably is not wrong. A couple million people rampaging through your country is not going to do good things. But this feels very inflated. This feels like political speak. I mean, it's hard for me to imagine a pharaoh who sits on the, the throne as ruler or king over Egypt wants to, in all honesty, say they are too strong for us. 
Like, which, what, what ruler says that? Like, hey, we have this group of people. They're stronger than us. That's, he's probably manipulating the claim. But having said that, he begins to build in Israel an enemy, even though they've done nothing to deserve it. They might attack us. They, they would overcome us. They're stronger than us. If war breaks out, they'll join our enemies and fight against us. And then look at this last fear in verse 10. And do what? Escape. Now, you guys know the end of the story. I mean, some of you guys watch DreamWorks. So it's a little bit off, let me just tell you. But, but you know that Israel gets out. So here's, here's Pharaoh's concern. They will fight against us and do damage. And then leave. Can anyone tell me what happens to Egypt through this whole process? Do they not suffer great damage and then lose Israel? But here, rather than seeing Israel as a blessing, he sees Israel as what? An enemy, kind of a cancer. It's a cancer that he's afraid is going to metastasize and kill the whole nation. And in fact, what he does, because he's putting himself against Israel, is he actually turns it into a destructive force in his nation. He proactively seeks this solution. He's afraid they're going to be fruitful and multiply, um, that they might be co-conspirators. And so he begins this plan of hard, violent oppression. Look in verse 13. Well, at the end of verse 12, you'll see it. The Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly... That speaks to they did it with violence, made the people of Israel work as slaves, made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field, and all their work they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Just as a, as a hint probably by Moses that we are to think of the Egyptians as partnering with an evil program going back to the garden, the Tower of Babel, which we didn't deal with in, our, in a course through Genesis, was built with these same words, brick and mortar. It's the, it's the only other time this word is used up till now. So here Moses is using word association to help us see Egypt has turned into a hostile enemy against God's program and God's people. So let me just remind you of Genesis in our study there. In Genesis 27, God tells Jacob, let, let people serve you and nations bow down to you. You will be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you. And blessed be everyone who blesses you. So when Egypt moves from being an incubator in which they're gladly seeing this nation be cultivated and rise to strength and power, and they turn in fear and begin making themselves an enemy of Israel, they move from receiving the blessings of God to receiving God's curse. God didn't change. They did. And Israel grow, goes from being this nation that's rising in prosperity along with Israel to a nation who creates a hostility against God's people and against God's program, and they ultimately receive the consequences of God's cursing. Which I think leads us to the final consideration in this text. I just want to take you to verse 12 and meditate on, with a, meditate on it a little bit with you before we close. Look at verse 12. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And, the, and they were spread abroad. 
So what happens as they're oppressed? So you think about what God is doing to Israel. The more they're oppressed, the more they have babies. You know, so Pharaoh has designed this strategy. He's like, if we, if we ship them off to these cities to build massive cities for us, the men are going to be gone. They're not going to be raising good boys and women. They're going to be not making babies because they're going to be gone from their homes. We're going to be able to slowly oppress these people, make them financially weak, and make them shrink in terms of prosperity and power and population. Right? This is oppression to kind of strangle this hose of vitality and wealth that's flowing into Israel. How does that work out for him? It's like the harder Pharaoh presses down on this growth in Israel, the more growth he gets. Sometimes I feel that way with bugs in my house. I feel like I spray, I clean the cobwebs, and they come back in droves. I definitely feel that way about mosquitoes right now. But Israel is swarming, teeming with people. And the harder Pharaoh puts himself in opposition to God's program, the stronger God's program overcomes him. So what are we to take away from this? How are we to consider this? I think there are some simple observations. You'll notice that God has not spoken of hardly at all in the text this morning that we've looked at. In verses 1 through 14, God is quiet in terms of named work. I think Moses is preaching in his writing. The more I'm in Genesis and Exodus, the more I'm seeing the creative genius that God used to inspire, to give us inspired scripture that Moses brought to the text. Israel probably feels as though God's abandoned them. I mean, picture yourself as an Israelite. Uh, part of the reason I know they've had at least 80 years of this suffering is because Pharaoh starts with slavery, then moves to infanticide, killing all these male children as they're born. And in that second tier of suffering, Moses is born. Moses spends 40 years growing up in Egypt before he runs to Midian. He spends 40 years in Midian before he sees the burning bush and comes back. So the second tier of suffering, first tier being the slavery, the second tier being the infanticide, that's 80 years from that time till Moses sees the burning bush. So we know that this first round of suffering is happening, let's say, 80 to 100 years before they get rescue. And just like most of us, when I pray and ask for God to rescue me, when I ask the Lord to, to come and help me, I mean, even this morning in preparation for preaching, I asked the Lord to help me. You know what I did not hear in response? Mark, I'll be there. You know what I'm confident I'm confident that the God who promises to be present with his people, to empower their gifted service, to be present among the gathered people of God, is present. And I don't have to hear a voice. And I think Israel is experiencing that same tension. They're crying out and groaning to God in chapter 2. God doesn't answer them with a voice. He sends Moses. But again, there's a delay. Can you imagine... Because I am sure there were mothers who lost their babies. 
I am sure there are women who saw their husband go to build the city Ramses, and their husbands never came home because they died in a construction accident. I am sure Israel felt the financial pressure and felt that loss of freedom as Egypt turned from being a friend to being hostile. And they're wondering, God, have you abandoned us? We used to be financially prosperous, but now Egypt has confiscated our land and stolen our men. God, where are you? And Moses says, the more Egypt turned against them, the more they multiplied. You notice he doesn't say God multiplied them? I think he implies it. But he's forcing us to do the same thing that Israel had to do. And that is go, this stuff that God is doing has to be God. We can't blame it on circumstances or, or just the way it is. That the divine actor, through works of providence, is doing good. Even when it doesn't feel like it. I think oftentimes we read the scriptures and we're about to get to that whole stage in which God's power explodes in irrefutable declarations of glory. And we're like, man, I would just love to see God do something like that. You know, like, I mean, even just the burning bush. I mean, like in the whole cosmic power display, the burning bush feels really small, but I'd be pretty cool with the burning bush. I'd be, I'd be even cool with a voice, like out of the burning bush. But throughout all of human history, God speaks through his word. It's one of the clearest declarations of how we enter into fellowship with our God and how we cultivate faith. God quietly works in providence. Very rarely does he pull out the megaphone and say, listen up, like he's about to do to Israel. Moses is preaching to Israel. There are going to be moments where your faith in God is tested. And God will not respond by sending manna from heaven. He will not respond by parting the Red Sea. But he will quietly rescue. Trust in him. Trust. God is in this moment building a nation. And consider this. If you integrate two nations in terms of geography and society, it probably is not going to be too long before those nations are blended and lost to one another and they become one unified nation. God has kept Israel apart from Egypt and now, probably through slavery, drives a wedge between them so that ethnically they stay unified. What Egyptian wants his daughter to marry an Israelite guy that's going to be a slave? Or see his grandbabies? be put in the slavery camps or see his grandson killed at birth. God isolates Israel. Not only that, Israel struggles even despite all the slavery and hardship and infanticide. They get out to the, the, the wilderness and what do they say? Hey, you know, Egypt actually wasn't that bad. Can you imagine if God hadn't given them 80 plus years of oppression and sorrow and affliction and violence, how quickly they would have done a U-turn? Like halfway through the Red Sea, like, ooh, okay, back to Egypt, right? It's comfortable, it's wealthy, it's easy. But God, for years, began to push Israel back to the land he promised. He secured for them 
ethnic wholeness. And he did it quietly. The New Testament makes it clearer that when we see, then we can't define it as faith. Moses is preaching to our faith. Trust in the God who quietly rescues, who saves and doesn't always preach through a megaphone. The God whose hand of providence is clear when the pages of Scripture say, look what God is doing. But I'm confident the Bible's not being written about me. I mean, we don't have a prophet in a church who's like writing a biography of Mark, letting me know, like, oh, that was God. But every Christian knows that was God. God is moving. God is saving. Some of you parents are looking at a row of children who trusted Christ because God is moving. Some of you are praying for your children because you know God is moving. You know that you need God's grace to see your children enter into salvation because God doesn't always announce and declare he is at work, but the believer has faith that God is moving. When we look at Israel, we look at how gracious God is. We have no doubt that God is moving. Stephen uses this example, Stephen in the New Testament preaching in Acts chapter 7, shows how there's always opposition to God's prophets and God's people. Should not be a surprise then that as God's people grow strong and as God blesses them, opposition arises against them. God's people are being blessed in the middle of suffering. And God is quietly blessing and saving and securing and incubating a nation in security. We know what they didn't. So it's easy for us to see it and be like, yeah, just trust him. Why are you complaining about salty water in the wilderness? He's so faithful. Yeah, you read the pages and you're not thirsty. So how are you on Monday morning? When you feel like your 15-year-old boy is never going to get the gospel and never going to obey you? How are you when your job seems insecure and your boss calls you in for a meeting that he has never called you in for and you're walking down to his office? Is your heart doubting in the providence of God? When your finances are looking tight when you're trying to buy a house, you're trying to figure out how to send your kids to school, when you see your kids leave home and they don't yet know Christ, are you trusting in the quiet providence of God? First Peter says that trials bring about proven character. Israel's in the middle of a trial. God is proving himself faithful. And Israel, generally speaking, in the first few chapters, seems to respond with faith. That's the call of God's people. In the middle of trials, do you trust in the providence of God, who is always at work, but quietly at work? As we close in prayer, I just want to encourage you to be people who are active, praying for your church family. Uh, this last week... Um, I'll give you a personal experience that's really not super big, but was big to me. 
Um, I lost a really good car. And then um, I got a phone call from someone driving my other car saying, hey, um, the warning lights went off and I pulled over and the engine was grinding. So I'm like, oh, two down, waiting for another call, for the third car to go. And I was just feeling that sense of overwhelmed, I don't know what to do. And, and I remember just, just driving my car and praying, saying, God, I'm, I don't know what to do. Um, within 48 hours, <clears throat> and I was super thankful for our mechanic, because I called him, and I think he could tell I was a little bit panicked. I'm like, I think I just lost my engine on my car. And he's like, well, eh, probably not. You're just cool down. So that was, that was a helpful phone call, and God was already bringing peace. And uh, within like 48 hours, the Lord had provided a car for us and gotten us out of that really hard financial place, and uh, the engine is fine on that car. So the Lord has been good to me. And I bring all that up because I think those are moments where my initial response is to feel overwhelmed by my problems. God in heaven had to look at me and be snickering. Like, overwhelmed, Mark? <laughs> really? Like, I make the world with words. Your bank account is mine. Your cars are in my hand. What are you worried about? That was a really humbling lesson, and God has been faithful. I would also like to remind you that that is the same God we pray to as needs come up within our church family, that we need to respond with faith, not anxiety and worries and hand-wringing and fears. God is faithful. Um, this last week, <clears throat> Pastor Mike had gotten some um, news about his heart, and so he went into a specialist on a Friday uh, they said that he, had a severe, he has a severe case of atrial fibrillation. Um, so that means his heart is pumping um, inefficiently and arrhythmically and fast. Um, but it's an ongoing problem. It's a degenerative challenge that he's going to be facing for, for a while to come. It's also the type of thing that puts a lot of his plans to Uganda up in the air in terms of questions. It's a pretty severe diagnosis. So... Um, you know, like, in the same way I know a car is no big deal, it feels like a much bigger deal when it's a pastor in our church. The same God who holds the bird in flight causes our hearts to pump and has Mike in his hands. But I would like for a couple things in our church family to pray that God be faithful to care for the Bissells, particularly not only in health but also in wisdom, because, you know, there have been obligations and plans made with the mission team in Uganda. And we, we as a church want to support the Bissells and that, that uh, missionary um, work there. So let's pray for wisdom, good health, skillful doctors. But let's be faithful. Because the God who quietly answered in Israel's need is still the same God today. Right? There, is, there is nothing that scares God about any of these problems. And so we have every confidence that God is doing something sweet and good, and we need to pray towards that end. So as an application, would you join me in praying for the Bissells this morning?
Father in heaven, you are the God who quietly answers. You don't always announce that you have done good. But one of the sweet graces that we receive is the ability to see the work, the fruit, the blessings, and the outcomes of your work. And we can stand back when we see lives transformed into Christ-likeness. And we can, we can point to that and say, God has been at work here. When we see marriages restored, we can say, God has been at work here. As we look at our own lives and we recognize the responses, the heart, the, the dependency, the maturity that has been happening, we can say, God has been at work in me. Lord, we, we pray with every confidence that you are at work today, even now in this room. I pray for the hearts that are in here that they would trust Jesus Christ, that they would look to these pages of Scripture where you show yourself faithful by quietly strengthening Israel, growing their population, securing their steadfast devotion to you, that you do these things, and you are doing them today in our church. You are strengthening us in the spiritual realm. You are growing our church so that its gospel proclamation is more bold and more clear and more effective. You are changing sinners, making them look more like Jesus Christ for your glory. So we know you're at work and we are confident when we come to you that tomorrow new mercies will greet us as we awake because they are new every morning. So we ask for a special Kindness to the Basels. I know that there's a lot of turmoil in their hearts. They would love to be used by you to be missionaries in Uganda. Lord, we do not know your plan, but we ask that according to your wise plan, you might send them if that is still good for them. And more importantly, good for the advancement of your son's kingdom. Father, we, we know that. Pastor Mike has always been in your hands, and so we can't give him over to your hands, but our hearts will continually trust him in your hands. We trust that you are doing good, that you'll use us to bring about spiritual growth, not only in the Bacelles, but in our church family, as we watch you minister to them through this trial. Lord, strengthen their hearts to trust you. Lord, we also ask for the means by which you often help us, doctors and medicines and surgeries, Lord, we pray that you would give the doctors special insight, that you would guard their thoughts so that they're directed to do exactly what would be most beneficial to bring about Mike's health. We ask that you would heal him from this through the surgeries and medicine so that he can continue serving and being faithful. Our church has been rich beneficiaries of the Bissell's ministry, which is really your ministry through them. We thank you for them and we Commend them to you that you might take care of them for our sakes and for the sake of your son's kingdom. He loves them more than we possibly could, and so we know we leave them in no better hands than to trust you to care for them. Please do so, Lord. Father, again, we pray for our church family, that you might move each one of us to be more like Jesus Christ, who walked in perfect obedience to you because he was fully confident that your word was the bread he needed. And he was fully confident that the joy set before him was worth all of the shame that he would experience. Father, give us that same faith, that same loyalty and love to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.